Welcome to the Bridgeway Church Podcast. My name is David Bowden, and every week I sit down with one or several members of our church staff and host a conversation about how Bridgeway is seeking to fulfill its mission as the Church of Jesus Christ here in our city. If you are a member of Bridgeway, we hope this helps you more deeply engage with what God is doing in our midst. And if you aren't a part of Bridgeway, we hope you feel welcome and that our discussions may lead to more Christ-glorifying ministry in your own context. Let's jump in. Well, welcome everyone to the Bridgeway Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are continuing our series in how to read the Bible. So far, we have looked at um, three different genres of biblical literature. We've looked at how to read narrative, specifically Old Testament narrative. We've looked at how to read the laws in the Old Testament. And then last week, we looked at how to read wisdom literature, books like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon, and Job. And uh, this week, we're going to be looking at how to read prophetic literature, uh, which has been a hotbed for a lot of different uh, points of views and uh, discussions and theories. Uh, And we're going to try to do our best to talk about how to read them responsibly, um, how to read them with Jesus uh, in mind, um, and how to understand what a prophet is and all that kind of good stuff. So uh, I'm very glad Sam's here to help me through all this. So I'm glad you're here to help me through it. (laughs) It's a team effort. Oh wow! Oh man! Okay, so what what qualifies as prophetic literature? What do we, what do we call prophetic literature? Well, there are several facets. Mm-hmm. Um, prophecy need not always be uh, something that pertains to the end of history. Right now, certainly it does include that. I mean, we do know that uh, the Bible, both Old and New Testament, in various places. Some people would say in a in a multiplicity of places, speaks very explicitly about how human history will come to its consummation. Um, and there are certainly statements in Paul. I mean, you think about uh, 1 Thessalonians, the end of chapter 4 and into 5. You think about 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2. Um, obviously, everybody's out there saying, Sam, what about Revelation? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> that in itself is a controversial question because there are some people who think that the majority of Revelation is actually talking about what has already transpired within history. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it's not prophecy. Right. Um, which, which raises another issue that we'll come up to back to in just a minute. So prophecy oftentimes is, um, is not concerned with the uh, end of history mm-hmm. or the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus. Uh, the prophets of the Old Testament in particular um, were calling the people of God to repentance from idolatry. Yes. And so they would prophesy in the sense that the, the word of the Lord would be put in their mouths and they would utter forth God's uh, denunciation of their behavior and his calling them to repentance and his assurance that if they did not repent, that certain judgments would befall them. Mm-hmm. And so that is as much prophetic uh, in nature. Uh, it was really focused on repentance, upon the call to turn from idolatry, and also just the declaration of, of what would happen if they didn't. Um, and yet that had very little to do with, you know, the Antichrist or, right. or uh, tribulation or millennium or anything of that sort. Yeah. Um, so uh, prophes- the prophetic literature of the Old Testament, man, you read Jeremiah. Mm. Um, Repent uh, is all over that oh book. Oh, my goodness, yeah. yeah. And, and Isaiah talking about the idolatry of God's people that led to the Babylonian captivity. Oh, and, yeah. I mean, read chapters 1 and 2, and you'll be heartbroken and be like, oh, no, am I, am I in this boat too? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the minor prophets. Um, oh, man. So much of it is, for example, a denunciation of unjust um, uh, economic policies. Oh, like and how you, Yeah, you're yeah. exploiting the poor right. and, and you're uh, defrauding widows and you're padding your own pocketbook at the expense of God's people and and how uh, God speaks with such um, uh, clarity and, and intensity to his people. Mm. So that's all part of prophecy. Right. Now, having said that, certainly when people hear the word, they think of foretelling the future. Yeah, predictions. Right. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Like this is going to happen in this particular way at this particular time. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's not always about the end of history. Sometimes... Prophecy in the Bible can be predictive, but I'm going to use a kind of a fancy word here. It's intercanonical. 
In other words, the, the, both the prophetic utterance and its fulfillment transpire within the time frame of the 66 books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, you have prophecies in the Old Testament of the impending Babylonian captivity right. that was fulfilled in the 6th century B.C. Um, or you have, of course, now this is a controversial issue, but Jesus in the so-called Olivet Discourse, mm-hmm. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, uh, is he talking about the end of the age, or is he talking about what would transpire within the lifetime of his own contemporaries, mm-hmm. mainly in the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in 70 A.D.? Right. Or could it be both? Right. I mean, we can delve into that a little bit. Yep. I mean, a classic example of intercanonical fulfillment is uh, Daniel reading the prophecies of Jeremiah and realizing that he's in the middle of its fulfillment right exactly. then. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that that's what fuels... The urgency of his prayers. prayers God, yeah. you said this. You seventy pre- years. You, you it, predicted yeah. this, and it's coming to pass. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I think when when we say the word prophecy, it's going to be a buzzword for a lot of people in different camps. I think uh, if you would have asked, um, let's see, if you would have asked high school David, <laughs> what was prophecy, he would have said predictions about Jesus. Right. So I think you have that camp of people mm-hmm. who it's all about predicting the future. I think there's also, if you would have asked college David, what are prophecies? They are people who stand against social injustice. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, and then I think if you would ask maybe a, a, a portion of David now, I'd be like, well, a, a prophecy is a revelation of God. It's not necessarily a characteristic. It's what is the, the word itself. You know? And so I'm like, I think there's all these different like I don't know, like demographics and ways of thinking about prophecy that exist out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering if there's a way to get underneath all of them and say, like, what what makes something prophetic or not? Why is something prophecy or not? And like, why are these books called prophetic? Yeah. Now, the it, we maybe we should identify which books we're talking about. Yeah, I think that'd be helpful. I, um, I'm not sure. I'm just thinking. You correct me if I'm wrong here. Mm. I don't know that there's any book in the Old Testament or the New Testament that is exclusively about prediction. Oh, yeah. I, I would, mean, Daniel I isn't. Daniel is uh, um, about how God's people live in the midst of a pagan culture mm-hmm. and asserting the sovereignty of God over the affairs of the nations. Now, granted, there is a lot of predictive material in right. Daniel. We're not denying that for a moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, chapters 2, 4... Uh, seven, eight, nine, 11, 12. God, I'm just about covered the whole book there. Yeah. But there's a lot more than prediction. Definitely. Um, there are predictive prophetic elements in, in many of the Old Testament books. Now, of course, some people may be saying to themselves, well, wait a minute, wasn't, wasn't David's life predictive of the life of Jesus? Well, that's where we get into the difference between prophecy and typology. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. Um, in the New Testament, you know, you have predictive elements many places. Of course, then you have, you, you mean, you already referenced it, multiple messianic prophecies in the Old Testament mm-hmm. that were fulfilled consummately in the person work of Jesus, right. um, for which we don't necessarily look for any kind of future installment, mm-hmm. as it were. Right. Um, he was and, pierced for our transgressions. We're not looking for a second crucifixion. Right. <laughs> from Isaiah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Psalm 22. Right. Uh, yeah, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're not expecting that happened Jesus once. to say that again. Yeah, that was right. fulfilled yeah. once and for all. <laughs> right. Um, so, um, you know, we have to. There's so many things about prophecy. I don't know if I'm veering off topic here, but one of the things we have to remember is that not all prophecies are intended for all people. Mm. Um, this is the this is the dangerous tendency of of what we call flattening out the Bible. Right. We talked about that with uh, yeah. with law. Yeah. 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 Where just because God said something to a particular person or a people group in the Old Testament doesn't mean he's saying it to you. Mm. Now, he might be saying it for you. Right. And remember that subtle little distinction in the sense that all of the Old Testament is designed to teach us something, mm-hmm. to we're to learn about the character of God and the ways of man. But that doesn't mean it was that God was thinking of Sam or David in uh, you know 2019 when he um, uh, get, put the word of the Lord in the mouth of Hosea or Isaiah or, or Daniel or some other prophet. Um, just some other characteristics of prophetic literature, and this is a major point of dispute. 
Uh, I think a major mistake where people get misled is they think all prophecy is literal. Mm. Uh, and what, Now, let me clarify. All prophecy is true. Right. But that doesn't mean it's all literal, mm-hmm. and there's a massive distinction between the two. We believe that whatever God put in the mouth of his prophet is true, and we believe that if it's predictive, uh, then it will come to pass precisely as God foretold. But that doesn't mean it's going to be literal in the sense of physically and tangibly um, uh, something that it's almost like, uh, if I can use the illustration, some people think that prophecy in the Old Testament is like a photograph is taken of the future. And the Old Testament prophet is looking at the future in this photograph in his hand, and he writes down what he sees. And therefore, when the fulfillment comes, it's going to be a photographic, literal reproduction of what he saw. Uh-huh. <clears throat> that is not always the case. Right, right. Um, we might, Yeah, we might not necessarily see the Son of Man coming down from a chariot like Daniel would predict or something like that, or we might not. I, I, I think of an illustration we already talked about with Daniel reading the book of Jeremiah, you know, Jeremiah said that after 70 years, the exile would end and he would they would go back in. And he's like, oh, look at the time. It's been about 70 years. Let me pray and we'll, we'll, the exile will be over and we'll leave Babylon and go back home. And an angel comes to him and says, no, 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 it's going to be way longer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, why? I thought literally 70 years. It's like, no, there's something else going on here. So much in prophecy yeah. is symbolic. Symbolic, yep. Um, uh, almost, I, I don't want to go over the top and say right. every all, every all number, but right. virtually all numbers yeah. in prophetic literature are symbolic mm-hmm. of some theological or spiritual truth. Um, so again, my point is there's not always a one-to-one correspondence between a prophecy and its fulfillment. Mm. Uh, so many times that the fulfillment is more expansive, it's, it's um, more inclusive, it's deeper in terms of its meaning. Mm. It's far more inclusive than uh, than perhaps of the original people to whom it was given. So uh, I, I think a perfect example of this, and I have to give credit to my good friend Greg Beal. Mm. Um, Greg has often used the illustration, which I think is helpful. He said, let's think about what – and I'm, my, my, my years here may be off, okay, so don't hold me to this. But let's say – a father in 1890 okay. tells his little three-year-old son, son, I just want you to know that when you grow up and and you're old enough to handle it, I'm going to provide you with a horse and buggy, and you'll be able to go anywhere you want. You'll be able to travel to see your friends, and you won't have to walk. Mm. And the son says, wow, a horse and buggy. Yeah. Well, 20 years later, uh, his father takes him out in the front yard and shows him one of the first Automobiles, Model you know, T, or Model something. T Ford. Yeah, he says, "Well, here is. I promised you that I would uh, that I would provide this for you." And the son says, "No, no, Daddy, you've lied to me. You, where's the horse? Where's the buggy?" Yeah. Uh, and his father says, "No, no, you don't understand. From within the context in which we were living at the time, what I promised you was transportation. Yeah, and is not a car far more effective transportation than a horse and buggy? Mm. Um, That's and, helpful. Yeah, because so." So we might read things in the Old Testament, for example, that God said he was going to do. And then when we come to the New Testament, we discover that he has done far, far more in a higher, more, if I can talk about escalated scale. Yes. Here's another example. Here's a classic one that I think people fail to realize. And this is probably going to stir up some of you listeners. And if you want to write in your emails, his name is David Bowden. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So for example... The promise of the land. Oh, yeah. Bring it on. Those are definitely prophetic. God says, I will give you this territory, and even outlines the boundaries of it to Mm -hmm. Abraham. And it's repeated multiple times in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. God will give you this land on which you will dwell, and I will be there with you and bring all these things to fulfillment. Well, when we come to the New Testament, what form does the consummation or the fulfillment of that prophecy take it's the whole earth the ends of the earth yeah and, pre- and preeminently the new earth yeah and and people say but whoa, 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 wait a minute god was talking about that tiny little strip of geography that we call israel you know that little bitty you know it's so tiny when you look at it on a world map right. that's what he promised to abraham and all the jewish people that's wherefore what he has to fulfill and i say 
Well, guess what? That little piece of geography um, and territory is a part of the earth. <laughs> yeah, right. It's yeah. So, it's so, getting a it's getting a car instead of a horse and buggy. Yeah, it's like it's like you know. And and the thing about it is, even Abraham knew this. Right. A Hebrews eleven. It says that when he got into the promised land, he wandered in it as if he were still a stranger. Mm-hmm. He had no roots there. Why? Because he was looking to the new heavens, the new earth, to the new Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. He understood that, the, and that's amazing how he could have understood this given what God had told him. But well, I mean, there in Genesis 12, it's there, I'll make you a blessing to all nations. Exactly. I mean, he, he, he understood that for what it was, that it was that God was going to bless all nations, not one nation. Yeah, so the principle here that I want people to hear is what I call escalation or mm-hmm. intensification or expansion. So it's not that the, 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 that the prophetic promise is abandoned mm-hmm. or somehow deleted when the fulfillment comes. It's just expanded. It's more comprehensive. Uh, so if somebody were to raise a hand and say, wait a minute, I, what, what about the land of Israel, that particular piece of, of, of uh, geography on the map? I said, yeah, yep. that's included. But guess what? You get the whole earth, too. And not just the whole earth, but the new earth. Mm. Rid of the curse of of the fall. Rid of all uh, the the effects of evil and man's sinful presence on it. So the point being, many, many times in prophecy from the Old Testament, we tend to kind of of look as if the New Testament had never been written. Mm. And we say, wait a minute, I've got to take a photograph, if I can use that analogy again, of the words of how it was described when it was initially given. And then I take that and I need to superimpose that on the end of history as if it's going to be reproduced in precisely those uh, uh, dimensions and parameters. And the fact is, with the coming of Christ and the expansion of God's saving grace to the Gentiles, to every tribe and tongue and nation and people, not just the Jews, Mm -hmm. um, there is an expansive dimension to the fulfillment of many of these prophetic utterances. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really helpful. Um, so, I, I mean, there was a lot there, and I think that, that, that understanding the idea of escalation is going to be really helpful for a lot of people as they read um, through some of the prophetic literature. What I want to try to circle back to is it sounds like, and I'm just going to make a statement and just correct me or refine it, expand on it, but it sounds like then you've used this language off and on that when God puts a word in someone's mouth, mm-hmm. is is that what prophecy is? Like we've, we've used this word a lot and we have prophetic literature. What is prophecy? Is that when God, like, is it thus saith the Lord? Is that what prophecy is? How should we understand? Uh, I think prophecy is bigger than that. Oh, okay. I think what you just described is, I'd describe as revelation. Okay, yeah. Um, God's, God put my word in his mouth and now he speaks it. But it might not have anything to do with the future. It might mm-hmm. have to do with a rebuke to the way people are living in the present. All right. Well, I didn't say anything about predicting. Yeah, okay. I'm just talking about here's a word from the Lord that I've put in your mouth. Right. Is that what prophecy is? No. Or, okay. The prophecy is the utterance okay. on the part of the one who's been the recipient of the revelation. Okay. That's the prophecy. So um, let, let, let me use New Testament language to maybe to draw this differentiation. Um, in Ephesians 1... Paul prays, and he says, I'm praying that God would grant you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that you might understand the hope you have in Christ. All right, that's a revelatory act that God, he said, I'm praying that the spirit of God would would come and disclose the the depths and the height and the glory and the beauty of of what it means to have Jesus and all that is in him. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't say that's that, that therefore in turn you now are called upon by God to utter this or to declare it and he will guarantee that the uh, the way you speak it will be in perfect uh, harmony with the way he revealed it but if he did that would be prophecy prophecy is the is the act of the human agent mm-hmm. or the human recipient of a revelation the revelation itself is not prophecy because mm-hmm. all of scripture is revelatory right so but we don't say all of scripture is prophetic right Yep, I get that. Does that make sense? That does make sense. But I guess, so So, what's the difference then between um, someone reveal, like, so like, let's let's take, like, um, let's take Moses on Mount Sinai, mm-hmm. and he's writing down the law. You know, maybe he probably did that before crossing the Jordan or something like that. But he's writing the Torah, Moses is writing the Torah, 
and you know he's being inspired by God to do so. Um, God is revealing himself to Moses, and he's writing it down. Is the act of Moses writing down what is revealed to him by God not prophetic? Well, it can be. Okay. In fact, we know that it probably is because Jesus says that all that was written in Moses was basically pointing to me. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I think it can be. Um, I just... I want to be careful if we make everything prophecy, nothing's prophecy. Sure, exactly. Uh, and we have to, I think we have to make some distinguishing, um, char- identify some distinguishing characteristics. Okay, so then um, so then, what I was trying to get at earlier probably wasn't the right path then. I was trying to get at, is there a baseline for what constitutes something being a prophecy is probably the wrong question, because that's about how God and man relate with the terms of, in terms of revelation and communication. Um, a, prof- a prophetic literature, it seems, also definitely bears revelation and communication of that revelation and um, inspiration, all that. But it also has these distinctive markers we've been talking about with um, its time for the people of Israel, the rebukes um, for social injustice, calls to repentance, uh, promises about the coming day of the Lord, uh, these different predictions. Sure. Some, some, so there are some distinctives that make prophetic literature different from other things that are revelatory and inspired. Sure. Okay. That's true. That might be helpful. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most, imp- and I have to get this in before I forget, I can't, I, I wouldn't forget it because it's so central. <laughs> this is kind of a little pet peeve of mine. All right. Um, sometimes I fear that a lot of evangelicals read the Old Testament as if Jesus never came. Yeah. And they don't realize how so much of what was prophesied in the Old Testament had its consummate fulfillment in the personal work of Jesus. Yes. Um, and I and I and now again, this might get us a little bit into the to uh, typology as well. Um, but take the temple. Okay. Yep. The temple itself was prophetic, mm-hmm. and in the sense that it pointed beyond itself to something more substantive, more lasting. That was yet to come. Yeah. So, you know, we could walk through. I did this when I preached through Hebrews in one of the sermons. I, we walked through the temple, and basically I, I looked at every single item, every article, every piece of furniture, and every bit of it was, in some sense, a, a prefiguring of Jesus yes. or his work or mm-hmm. his character. Um, the temple itself, it is what? It is the place where God manifests his glory and his presence and his power. It's the place where he communicates with man. Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus is the temple. He is the place. He's the locus of God's glory. This is the final embodiment of God's presence among us. This is where we go to hear the voice of God. We go to Jesus. Um, That's why, and again, I know we'll probably get some emails, send them to David. (laughs) And I'm going to say this is just as because I have strong convictions about it. This idea that Christians think that the Bible prophesies the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, that God would somehow sanction that, is abhorrent. If if a structure that is called the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, it will rise up as a stench in the nostrils of God. Now, that's strong language. Let me defend it. It's because... Jesus is the consummate fulfillment of the temple and of all prophetic utterances regarding it. Um, that whatever is built, uh, wherever in Jerusalem or elsewhere, um, that's merely stone and marble and 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 material uh, objects. God does not live anywhere else but in the person of his son, and by extension in us because we are the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. We are now. That's why Paul then says, goes on and says, and you are the temple of God in right. whom the spirit of God dwells. Um, I don't, there may well be an effort on the part of some misguided people to rebuild a, a, a temple structure in Jerusalem. God is not sanctioning that. God is offended by that. Because Jesus is the temple and we as his body, the church of Jesus Christ, are the temple. We are the, read First Peter chapter two. Read Ephesians chapter two. Uh, read uh, you know Second Corinthians six. Uh, all sorts of texts that affirm that the body of Christ is the place of God's dwelling. Mm-hmm. He's not going to live in a building anymore. Right. Well, we of, are the building. I think of John four, where, yeah. where he's like, "Well, you're not going to worship on this mountain or in the temple anymore because I'm here now." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the point is, 
when people get fixated on the end of the age, right, as if somehow there has to be a photographic reproduction uh, in terms of the fulfillment of what they think was predicted in the Old Testament, and they fail to realize, wait a minute, ask yourself the question, to what extent was this prophecy fulfilled in Jesus? He's the consummate expression of this uh, of this predicted reality. Um, and I fear that Christians have failed to, to see him in that light. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, the, and there are so many other things. For example, I think we've talked about this before. I think the Sabbath is a is a is prophetic yes the institution of the sabbath but it was prophetic not of you know me not mowing my grass on sunday afternoon right it's prophetic of the rest that i have because jesus has done the work for me mm-hmm. and i don't have to labor to gain god's favor i trust in jesus and i rest in him 24 7 right. that's why all seven days of the week are holy unto the lord not yeah. just one in particular right um so many other examples of this um so anytime we talk about prophecy, we have to ask the question, um, do I see the fulfillment of this in the person and work of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can speak to this even better than I can, the Exodus. Oh, man. Is the event of the Exodus yes. prophetic? Oh, my yes. goodness, yes. Is it typological? Well, yeah, it's probably both. Yeah. But what is the ultimate Exodus? Yeah. It's the deliverance <laughs> not out of physical bondage to a people, uh, the Egyptians, but it's deliverance out of spiritual bondage by the shed blood of the true sacrificial Passover Mm -hmm. lamb that sets us free from slavery to sin. Yes. Yeah. I think this is so helpful. Um, Not only to, I I think it will really help us. I think, I think going to these really firm places like the Exodus and Sabbath, um, things like that are going to help us. And even the temple are going to help us have categories for what um, prophetic fulfillment in Christ looks like as we go to these um, books of prophecy. Because the books of prophecy can be really difficult to read. Um, oftentimes, especially with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're long. They have uh, it's almost poetic language to them. They are uh, they are rooted in history, in Israel's history. So they're going to reference tons of of countries and cities and people groups that we are, are we're completely unfamiliar with. And, uh, and so I, I think these larger conceptual categories have been helpful for us to say, first and foremost, let's look to Jesus and how he fulfills these categories. But I think if we take a step back and we go, what, what are some helpful ways for us to understand how these books were written in what context they were written? That might, if we could provide some handholds for people, maybe even like, in what was Israel's historical situation in which a lot of these prophets wrote, and what was going on? Why were they there? Um, you know, where do they sit in the story of Israel? Sure. I think, and really and and that brings up another very important point that unfortunately people don't consider, and it was related to something I said earlier. When Old Testament prophets um, spoke and made predictive utterances about the future. They did so from within the cultural and covenantal confinements of the day in which they lived. So that's why, for example, when they describe the final battle, Mm, when God defeats all his enemies, they talk about bows and arrows and horses and uh, the armaments that they were familiar with in that day. It would have been ridiculous for God to have described this in terms of ballistic missiles and nuclear bombs and tanks and airplanes. Yeah, and computer hackers. Yes. <laughs> so they, they, let me put it this way, they spoke of the future in the terms with which they themselves were familiar in their own present. Um, so that's why when you read these predictions, you don't say, oh, well, I, you know, let, let's take another example. Uh, Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, <laughs> so the Valley of Megiddo was a very prominent place for battles. It right. was ideal. It's where wars took place throughout all of the Old Testament history. And so when the Old Testament prophets spoke of Armageddon, basically what they're saying is that was simply a byword, a, a proverbial way of of describing um, the consummate battle. Mm-hmm. They don't. They aren't trying to tell us that the literal end of the history battle between Jesus and the forces of darkness are going to take place within the confines of that little valley over there in Israel. Right. It'd be like walking into a party here in Oklahoma City and me saying like, man, it's like Vegas in here. Yeah. And it's like, oh, people understand what I mean by that. Exactly. Sin City here. 
I'm not saying like, oh, I'm in Nevada. <laughs> Armageddon was a stock proverbial right. saying for conflagration, yeah. conflict. And, uh, and failing to realize that, people get obsessed with, well, how are they going to all fit into that little piece of territory over there? Right. You know, it just doesn't work. Um, so... Uh, man, I got off. I get off on these little tangents because I have a lot of energy for them. Well, I but. think it's helpful though because I think when people think about prophecy, they think about a lot of these hot button topics. You know, I mean, people write best selling books on these things, speculating about where they will take place and how and when. And uh, I think it's very helpful to kind of address some of these hotbed issues. Well, let me give another example. Yeah, um, Isaiah sixty five. Okay. New, new heavens, new earth. Yes. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. It's important to know that Isaiah is not talking about what you all think of as the millennial age, that thousand years following the coming of Christ, which I don't believe in. But <laughs> Go I, read Kingdom Come by yeah. Sam Storms. <laughs> Isaiah explicitly says, quoting, he's uttering the words of God for us, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And then he goes on to describe what it will be like. And... Um, he says, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fulfill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And people say, ah, that must mean there's going to be literal infant death uh, in, uh, the millennial in the reign. millennium or in the new heavens and new earth. And no, you, you have to understand what, what was, what was a, 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 a calamity um, that was so very common in the ancient world that brought sorrow and sadness to people. It was premature death of infants. And he's mm-hmm. saying here, can you imagine? Now, again, don't, don't, at, don't hear me asking this question of people in the 2019. Right. Put yourself in the mindset of people in the 8th or the 7th century B.C. when Isaiah wrote this and imagine him saying, hey, uh, can you imagine a time when if an infant died at 100 years old, we would consider it a premature death. Right. Isn't that amazing? But you don't take that and, and wrench it out of that context and then uh, and, and, and implant it, as it were, and superimpose it upon the future as if he was speaking in chronologically literal terms. He's trying to describe as best he can, given the circumstances and the understanding and the historical context of his own day, what the ideal existence in God's kingdom is going to be like. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the sorts of things we have to keep in mind when we're reading the Old Testament. Yeah. So t- talk to me a little bit about um, the historical context of the prophets when they came, people like Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, some of the minor prophets. Um, what was going on in Israel, uh, and why were the prophets showing up in such large numbers and saying some of the things they were saying? Oh, yeah. Well, Israel had fallen into rank idolatry. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, if you want to read the descriptions, read Ezekiel. Oh, man. Yeah. It's just it's just horrific. And so, obviously, um, you know, Isaiah prophesied it a couple hundred years before it happened, although liberal scholars say, you know, that it was uh, it was... Isaiah was written, you know, post-exilic. Oh, right, yeah. I believe it was written pre-exilic, and mm-hmm. I think he was prophesying God's judgment mm-hmm. that if there was not repentance, that he was going to um, bring his people into exile and under bondage to a to an unbelieving people. And so the prophets were urgently captivated by this, uh, the necessity of repentance. Turn from your idolatry. You, 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 God's judgment is going to come upon you as a nation and that's what most of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel are concerned with, um, is the is the impending judgment that came when Nebuchadnezzar brought the Babylonians and sacked Jerusalem, burned down the temple, carted off most of the people of Israel into slavery mm-hmm. uh, in Babylon. Uh, so that was kind of the historical framework within which they were operating. And to think that any predictive utterance that they gave is therefore going to be reflected in a photographic reproduction thousands of years later mm-hmm. um, is, is, is doing disservice to the context in which they were operating. Yeah. You might not be able to do this off the top of your head. If you are, I'll just stand up and give you a standing ovation. But could you talk to us a little bit about how the like the like some of the narrative books like Kings and Chronicles kind of overlap with time periods of the prophets and how some of the prophets even overlap with each other? Because I think when I was growing up reading the Bible, I kind of thought all the narrative happened 
and then the prophets came devoid from that narrative, separated yeah. from that narrative, and then somewhere dangling out there in like second century BC or something, Malachi taught. You know, like I kind of had it. I was reading my Old Testament chronologically, like it was chronological. Like or, it was in like linear, chronolo- linear. linear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So talk to me a little bit oh. about how to, I know like that's a really hard question because there's so many moving parts there, but maybe even just ironing out some of the biggest boulders if possible. Wow. Where do we go with that? Um, <laughs> let me think about that for just a moment. I don't, you're not going to have to stand up and applaud because I think I'm going to fail you in this regard. <laughs> I told you it was a hard yeah. question. Yeah. Let's, let's just state the general principle yeah. without trying to um, uh, cherry pick a few incidental items. The point is that there is considerable historical overlap. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes the narrative uh, that we read in the historical books is chronologically simultaneous with the, the the lifetime and the prophetic utterances of what we read in Isaiah and Daniel, mm-hmm. and not so much Daniel, but yeah. Daniel's um, after all this Nebuchadnezzar yeah, yeah, stuff. During, yeah, 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 he's sixth century BC. Right, um, but certainly, um, you know, Amos was pretty much chronologically simultaneous with Isaiah and so mm-hmm. forth. So the point being, I think the reason why you asked the question, at least I think it is, is that the point being that we have to ask those questions yes. of the individual prophets prophets and their prophecies. When was this written? Mm-hmm. What was the condition of the people of Israel? Yes. What was God seeking to accomplish? And <clears throat> how does how does the cultural... Uh, milieu in which they lived and wrote, informing how we should understand their words and especially how we should understand its their fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's all I'm trying to get at is that I just think it the the day I realized <laughs> that I could go and find in Kings or Chronicles or something um, a historical narrative that basically painted the picture for what was going on in Israel during the time that this or that prophet was prophesying, and I could get a picture of who was on the throne and yeah. what battles were being fought and what what kind of idolatry was really going on. And then I read the rebukes from the prophets. It just became all the more vivid for me and really helped me couch what they were saying in more concrete terms. Yeah. Uh, and I know we're going to r- run in short on time, so I just want to throw in a couple of other things that people need to keep in mind. Yeah, good. Um, we may have touched on census plenior earlier. Oh, I don't know if we have. Yeah. That's a fancy language for fuller sense mm-hmm. or more complete sense. It is a controversial issue because there's some uh, Old Testament scholars who deny census plenior. Census plenior mean, simply means that there may well be um, in prophetic utterances more meaning than what the prophet himself understood. Right. You know, we we talk so much about authorial intent. Mm-hmm. Authorial intent is crucial. Yes. We have to ask the question: What did the author intend by his words? But there are times when we have to ask, wait a minute, what if God intended more by their words than they themselves were capable of comprehending mm-hmm. at the time? Mm-hmm. So I do believe that um, that there is such a thing as the census plenior. You know, I think, for example, of, um, what is it? Is it Hosea or Malachi? I think it's Hosea where he talks about how God led his people, his son Israel, out of bondage in Egypt mm-hmm. um, and how that then is applied by Matthew to the experience of Jesus when they had to flee Herod's oh, right. murderous yeah. intent. Definitely. Um, Not the authorial intent. Right. Yeah. yeah there's The Old Testament prophet wasn't thinking about... No. A, a future descendant exactly. who would have an exodus of his yeah. own. Yeah. Now, can census plenior be taken to an extreme? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Got to be careful because we don't want to read into texts uh, something that that really isn't legitimately mm-hmm. there or intended by God. Is so, this the same thing as double prophecy? I've, I've also heard it kind of called that with, uh, I think it's Isaiah 7 in the virgin birth prophecy. Would that be a, an example of, like, he was intending to talk yeah, about... Double fulfillment. Double mean, fulfillment. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. yeah, double fulfillment. Yeah, yeah, that would not so much be... Well, in a sense, it's census plenior. There was a fuller sense to the words of Isaiah that he recorded there than what was true in the immediate present of, of that particular time in the 8th century B.C. Uh, so, yeah, sometimes, you know, the whole issue of the, of the Olivet Discourse, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, still, I'm still exploring this. Yeah. I do believe that the primary focus of our Lord's Discourse in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 
was what was going to happen within the lifetime of his own contemporaries and the destruction of Jerusalem. But having said that, could it possibly be that in giving that prophetic portrayal of what was going to take place over the next 40 years, (laughs) could he also have been providing something of a blueprint or a paradigm Mm. for what would take place globally at the end of the age? In other words, could the... I'm going to use fancy words here, so just forgive me, folks. Could what he described on a microcosmic scale limited to Israel in the first century be prophetic of what's going to happen on a macrocosmic or global scale mm-hmm. at the end of history? Yeah. That's a real possibility. Sure. And just needs more exploration. Um, so, yeah, the census plenior, I think, is a valid thing, but... I think it has to be governed by what the New Testament actually says. Yeah. In other words, you and I can't sit here and go to the Old Testament and read a prophecy and say, well, yeah, I think we know what the fulfillment is, but I think there's more to it than that. Mm. Well, on what grounds are we saying there's more to it than that? Right. There needs to be some hint in the New Testament itself right. that God intended more than what the, New, the Old Testament author actually uttered. Yeah, definitely. Um, what, one other quick thing it's important to keep in mind. Most Christians think of prophecy in the Old Testament as being unconditional, mm. and it's not always unconditional. Right. Um, if, if you have time, open your Bible to Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 10. In fact, let me do that right now. I actually marked it. Uh, listen to what it said here. Uh, this is God speaking. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy. So here's God saying, Okay, Nineveh, okay, uh, Assyrians, I'm going to tear you down. I'm going to pluck you up. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to wipe you from the face of the earth. That sounds like, well, if God said he's going to do it, then he's got to do it, right? Mm. But listen, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken, in other words, we could even say concerning which I have prophesied, turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plan it, and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice. Then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. So the point being, sometimes God says, I'm going to do this, but mm-hmm. <laughs> if you repent or don't repent, then I'll do something different. Right. Uh, Jonah, classic example. Yes. Jonah, get up and go to and prophesy to Nineveh in 40 days. I'm going to judge it. Well, God didn't judge it. Right. Did, did God's prophecy fail? Well, no, because there are oftentimes inherent conditions. Sometimes they're implicit and they're not even stated. Mm. But you see as the events unfold that they're, oh, obviously there was a qualifying uh, uh, principle here that if this would occur or that would occur, then what God said he was going to do would not, in fact, happen. So that's important to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. And is is one way to think about that uh, in the nature of prophecy uh, is it exists and God God uses prophecy to cause effects and like I just think of Josh or Jonah and Nineveh where the that 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 people would not have repented had Jonah not brought a message of judgment sure. and so God God said judgment is coming oh but you repented good I was I knew you would yeah. <laughs> if I brought this message to you yeah. and so I think a lot of people will use passages like Jeremiah 18 to be like well God just changes his mind willy-nilly you know he doesn't really know what's going to happen. Uh, which would be like the opposite of prophecy. <laughs> and like, right. uh, and so I just wanted to throw that caveat in there that God will use prophetic words in, like, in these conditional ways that you're talking about in order to elicit the responses that he wants sure. from his people. Um, one other thing I want to mention before we finish. Um, <clears throat> we talked briefly about typology. Yeah. It, it, just so people know, it's really hard to know the difference between prophecy and typology. Mm. Um, scholars have... <clears throat> have done all that they can to try to differentiate. And um, uh, typology is more subtle. Mm. There's not necessarily a this shall come to pass type of language. Sure. So, for example, the life of Joseph mm. is typological of Jesus. Right. And you can see pattern. In other words, patterns in or, or events in the life of Joseph display patterns that are repeated in the life of Jesus. Same thing with David. David is obviously typological of the person of Jesus. Uh, Moses, his experience is very clearly typological of the life of Jesus. The nation Israel as a yes. whole. Uh, when you read um, the opening chapters of Matthew and especially the temptation mm-hmm. of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness, 
Uh, Jesus is basically reproducing in his own personal experience what Israel should have done right. during their time of wilderness wandering. Mm-hmm. And, and so these kind of, of patterns that, that and, and by the way, typology is such a beautiful illustration of the sovereignty of God over history. Yes. He repeats himself <sighs> yeah. in history in subtle ways in which uh, events, institutions, decisions, experiences, persons of the Old Testament are repeated in subtle ways in the life of primarily of Jesus, sometimes even of the church as a whole. Mm-hmm. So typology is is beautiful. It is so exciting when you see those patterns reproduced and you say, only if God is in control of history could this happen. Yes, yeah, which I think is a huge feature of prophetic literature as a whole. Yep. I, I know that even Isaiah talks about that when he's like, look, if if this comes to pass, then this is for real. <laughs> you know, and like, I, I'm, I'm here to show you that God's in control. Yeah, and this is, this is a little bit off topic, but... Um, Biblical prophecy is one of the most, um, one of the strongest um, objections and repudiations of what's called open theism. Mm-hmm. You open theists say the future is open. God doesn't even know what's going to happen. He doesn't have foreknowledge of these events. Well, if he doesn't, how could he predict them to come to pass? Right. Because there would always be the, uh, the very real possibility that human decisions, which he likewise cannot know or predict, mm-hmm. would derail his purposes and his words would fall and come to naught. Right. So if you believe in prophecy, you can't be an open theist. Yeah, <laughs> I, would, I would agree with that. Um, two, two questions, and hope, let's give them as quick of answers as we can, if it's possible. The, the prophets often talk about the day of the Lord. Mm-hmm. What, is, what is that? I think there are multiple days of the Lord. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> um, I think the day of the Lord is any time God intervenes in substantially visible and, and um, widespread ways to bring judgment, mm against um, idolaters or judgment even against his people or judgment against the pagan nations for their immoralities. Um, I think, uh, obviously, there is a day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, which is the second coming of Jesus. That is kind of the prophetic consummation of all previous days of the Lord. Mm -hmm. I think 70 AD was the day of the Lord. I think when God brought that decisive judgment against Israel, the temple, and the city through uh, the Roman armies— that was an expression of the day of the Nebuchadnezzar Lord. and Babylon coming and taking the people away with sure. that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it just, you know, this is not day of the Lord, but it's another example. What about um, the beast mm. or antichrist or the man of sin? Well, there was an initial fulfillment of that in Antiochus Epiphanes yes. in the middle of the second century BC. It's very clear. Jesus also believed that Titus and the Roman armies constituted another embodiment of the man of sin or antichrist. Mm-hmm. Then also, um, you know, we have John saying that anybody who denies that Jesus is the Christ is of the spirit of Antichrist. And then in some sense, um, you know, the Beast of Revelation or the final installment, you know, 2 Thessalonians 2 of the Man of Sin is another installment of it. And so, you know, that's the the, the same sort of thing that you were just referring to with regard to the Day of the Lord. There are multiple expressions, multiple embodiments that I think obviously will have their final consummate expression in conjunction with the second coming. It's good. It's just a regular thing that comes up in the prophets I thought would be mm. good to touch on in terms of defining our terms. The last one, uh, it's it's kind of a lame one to end on, but I just forgot it until now. We mentioned in the last episode as we were going through the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew layout of the Old Testament, which you, I don't even think we named it the Tanakh while we were walking mm. through it. But regardless, um, you mentioned that uh, like... Samuel and kings and uh, uh, that th- they are a part of the prof- the prophetic literature mm-hmm. that they're included in the Hebrew understanding of the prophetic literature and Elijah's in there and he's called a prophet yeah. but it, it seems very different from Isaiah and sure. uh, it's not included in our major or minor prophets it's called like our history books in in the in more of the Protestant canon so maybe just a quick answer for maybe why well, were those called prophetic well, I don't think we should be locked into those categories no um, the, 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 the biblical literature is too fluid and dis- there are the, all through the historical narratives, there are prophetic utterances. Mm-hmm. There are occasions of wisdom that, that you find in there. Um, um, the, and, and the same thing in, uh, in the Psalms, the Psalms are poetry. The Psalms are what wisdom. The Psalms are also highly prophetic, especially mm-hmm. concerning the Messiah. So, 
you know, we we talked in our very first episode about the different genre of scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a helpful classification, but we got to realize that many books of the Bible contain a multiplicity of genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Gospels do. Yep. Gospel is a genre unto itself. We'll talk about it in a in a future podcast. But there's prophecy in gospel. Mm-hmm. There's historical narrative in gospel. There's biography in gospel. Um, there are uh, there there's law in gospel. Right. Uh, and that may sound like a contradiction, but it's not <laughs> in the way that I'm using the terms. So yeah, <clears throat> I think we need to be careful that. We do not somehow lock in to these rigid categories and say, oh, because that book is listed under that particular rubric, that it's only going to address the things that uh-huh. that, that kind of literature typically addresses. That's great. I think that's a good answer. Well, awesome. Well, this has been this has been really helpful. It's been a, a, a much more, uh, I, not necessarily an easier discussion. I think we probably pushed way more buttons than we have before on, on this series. You know the thing we didn't talk about? What? Maybe we ought to do this in a special episode. What's that? We didn't talk about New Testament prophecy. Is it different from no, Old Testament we didn't. prophecy? We know? didn't. Especially we, the spiritual gift of yes. prophecy in the New Testament. I know we've, we've touched on that elsewhere in the Bridgeway we podcast. We did, yeah. yeah. But the people out there are probably saying, hey, guys, talk about that. Yeah. Well, I think we have. I think we have, yeah. If you go to the Bridgeway podcast and look through our archives, there is a series we did on prophecy. Yeah. And if you'll listen to those, you'll definitely get an answer to what's the difference between Old Testament and New Testament exactly. prophecy. But that's a, that's a good thing to bring up. So uh, anyway, yeah, I think next week we're going to talk about what you just brought up, which is uh, how to read the Gospels, and then we'll end with how to read epistles, mm-hmm. unless we think of one more to throw in. But that'll be uh, that'll be our roadmap for the next two weeks. So thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Bridgeway Podcast, where you will find a new conversation every Thursday. For more information about Bridgeway Church, we invite you to visit bridgewaychurch.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BridgewayOKC, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash bridgewaychurchokc. If you have any questions that you would like us to address on the podcast, feel free to email us at podcast at bridgewaychurch.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on the podcast app as it helps other people like you find our program. So on behalf of all the pastors and staff here at Bridgeway Church, I'm David Bowden saying thanks for listening and we will see you next week.